this morning. If you want to turn with us, we're going to be in Acts chapter 21 and 22, looking at passages along the way in there. And that is on page 643, if you're using the Bible in front of you, to help you find that a little easier. Um, so two weeks ago, we were looking at Acts chapter 20. And Acts chapter 20 is sort of the, a turning point in the, in the story of Paul. And what happens is that Paul is uh, leaving Ephesus. He has spent three years. It's the longest amount of time he spent with the church plant on any of his three missionary journeys. And so this is a very influential city. We looked at the, the logistics of it. There was a huge temple there. There was a giant... Um, uh, amphitheater that was built there. There was, it was a booming city. There were around 600,000 people that claimed Ephesus as their home. It was a port city. It was the second largest city in the known world at the time outside of Rome. And, uh, and so it was very influential, and Paul worked really hard to get a church established in Ephesus. And as it was working, we saw the Holy Spirit work in people's lives, and we saw them grow in their understanding of who Jesus is, and, and it actually started to affect the economy. If you remember, we saw a riot uh, in Acts 19. Uh, the people that, that, were, that were riled up by the silversmiths who were saying, hey, we build these little trinkets and these, these gods for people to take home with them and continue their God worship. And, uh, and these Jesus followers are starting to hurt our bottom line. And, uh, and so we, we saw that take place in Acts 20. Paul is on his way out of Ephesus because God has laid on his heart, the Holy Spirit has led and impressed upon him that it's time for him to circle back to Jerusalem. So that's where we pick up the story, but if you remember, one thing that I think is important for us to remember is Paul actually uses the prophetic word of Ezekiel, where he says in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 1 through 7, if you're a note taker, uh, it's a prophecy that Ezekiel gave that, that talks about the watchman, and he says that, it, that if the watchman knows that the sword is coming and doesn't warn the people, then the, the blood of the townspeople is on his hands. But if the watchman knows the sword is coming and warns the people and they don't leave and they get taken down by the sword, the blood is on their own hands. And that's the prophecy that Ezekiel gives in Ezekiel. And, and Paul says as he's, leaving, uh, as he's leaving Ephesus, he tells the leaders of the church that that prophecy, he's, he's saying that I, I am not guilty of any blood that is shed in this town or any loss or any people that don't understand the gospel or the people that aren't giving over to it because I did not, this is what his words were, and I think they're awesome for us to remember, I did not shy away from preaching and teaching the full counsel of God. The full counsel of God. Do you know why Paul always finds himself in trouble? Because he preaches the full counsel of God. The full counsel of God Will, it will offend, and it will, it will wreck us. And when we hear something from God's Word that we don't like, we have one of two choices. Well, I guess you could ignore it. You could obey it. So I guess there's three choices. You could ignore it. You could obey it and, and change because the Holy Spirit's convicting you through His Word. Or you can get mad at the messenger. And Paul is consistently meeting the ire of a deeply rooted religious system that is constantly coming after him because 
he preaches and teaches the full counsel of God. But on his way out of Ephesus, it's one of the things he challenges the leadership with is when you go back in and you continue to lead this massive movement of the gospel in the second largest city in the known world at the time, do not shy away from preaching and teaching the full counsel of God, no matter what it costs you. That's Paul's message. So what we see in chapter 21 is, uh, in Acts 21, we're not going to read the whole thing, but if you're looking at that and you start at the beginning of Acts 21, you're going to see that he's on his way to Jerusalem. It's going to give you names of cities and towns along the way. It's even going to mention a couple people that he sees and runs into. And uh, not that that stuff's not important, but just for sake of time, we're not going to read through that. So the first part of Acts 21 gives us on his, he makes his way into Jerusalem, but the first part really gives you a map or a roadmap as to how he got there and, uh, and lets you know that he's heading to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, he actually gets a warm reception and he's able to teach and move about with little to no resistance. And, uh, and it's actually kind of refreshing to read that as he's heading back into a place the Holy Spirit has already told him, you're going to reach hostility and uh, you're going to get persecuted when you get to Jerusalem because of this message. So he knows what he's up against but he doesn't see it. And so on the seventh day, the other shoe drops and he gets confronted by a mob and they stir up the crowd. And after they do that, Paul ends up in prison. So today, we're going to pick up the story right there. And uh, if you want to read along with me, we're going to look at, uh, we're going to read it here in a minute, but we're going we're to start at verse 37 of chapter 21. And... Uh, 21, Acts 21, verse 37, and we're going to read through uh, into 22, or yeah, chapter 22. Um, before we read God's Word together, though, let me, let me have a word of prayer before we get into this. God, thank you for the power and the authority of your Word. Thank you that uh, this is an awesome opportunity to open it and be the one that communicates it, but it's also uh, a heavy responsibility, one that I, I don't want to enter into flippantly. So may you be honored and glorified in this, and may the words that come from Adam be completely forgotten and quickly, but the ones that are coming from you uh, do their work however you see fit for it to be done. And may your word have power and authority in this place today, regardless of who the messenger is. It's your message, Lord, and we want to claim that in your name. Amen. Chapter 21, look at verse 37, and uh, just follow along with me as I read this, because there's going to be a lot of details and some people, and I think it's important that we spend some time reading through this. Paul starts off in verse 37 of 21, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, 22 verse 1. This is Paul's response to his accusers, to this angry mob. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, 
born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders could bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were, with, who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way, I drew near to Damascus. About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? The Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, was well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for, everyone to ev- to, for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles." Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. I don't want to overlook the monumental moment that we just read. This is the only time that we hear Paul, I'm sure he did it before, but this is the only time that we see Paul tell his story in that much detail. And it's important to note who he's telling the story to, and where he's telling them that story. If you notice at the tail end of that, God says, I'm going to remove you from Jerusalem because these people will not receive your testimony here. I'm going to send you far away to work with the Gentiles. Now that was at the front end of Paul's life. Now he has been on three missionary journeys. He has planted I don't know how many churches throughout Asia, and God, at the tail end of his time in Ephesus, through the Holy Spirit, lays on Paul's heart, it's time for you to go back to Jerusalem. So God pulled Paul out at the front end because he said, you haven't earned credibility with living out the gospel enough for these people to hear your message. You're going to go away to where people don't know you as well and people need this message more desperately and you're going to learn how to travel and how to trust and how to live and how to love and how to teach. And then God puts a call on his life to go back home. 
and share that message with people who are going to hear all about Paul throughout all those years. That the former Saul of Tarsus that used to be a tyrant to the church has been planting churches and sharing the gospel throughout the whole known world for all these years. Paul has been beaten, he's been trivialized, he's been imprisoned. All of these things have happened to him, and he never once backed down from teaching the full counsel of God. And that is whenever he finally steps back in to Jerusalem. So we've seen pretty consistently how Paul presses through trials and all these challenges that come out of carrying out the mission that God put on his life. One of the things that allowed Paul to do this was that he understood that he had a mission. That he understood that. Now, as we continue through this in the book of Acts, as we've seen throughout all of it, is it, it, no matter how you see the story of God unfold through God's word, one thing that is abundantly clear is that the people of God who do work for God can only do it when they have a full grasp of what their mission is. They might not have the detailed layout of when and where, but they do know what they've been called to. They do know what the mission is. They do know what's of utmost importance. When I was thinking about that, I was thinking of, of the movie Saving Private Ryan. They knew their mission was to retrieve Private Ryan so that his mother wouldn't have to grieve the loss of all of her sons. And so this small group of men are charged with going and retrieving him. They have no idea what they're up against. They have no idea what they're going to run up against. They have no idea how much enemy they're going to see. Or they don't have any clue about where they're headed completely or how they're going to get there. Or, and they struggle along the way with why is this mission worth it. The only thing they knew that was marching them forward was their mission was given to them to save Private Ryan to get him home alive. So when you watch the movie unfold, when you watch the story unfold, you see this struggle of people that might not completely uh, agree with the mission, that may not be completely on board with the mission, but they have a captain who continually points them back. And one scene in the movie, the captain, played by Tom Hanks, says, I don't know this Private Ryan. I don't know him at all. All I know is that I got told by my higher-ups, that this is our mission, and if this is what we have to do, and if this is what it costs us, then that's what we do. Because when you know what your mission is, you go until the end to fulfill it. And Paul lived like that. Paul knew what his mission was, and he lived his whole life to fulfill it. So as we continue to look through this, let me suggest to you that you take some time and write your own mission statement. Have you ever considered that? Have you ever considered thinking through the question, what's the answer to the question, what is the force driving you through life? What's the thing that gets you up in the morning and keeps you going? What's the motivator? Have you ever written it down? Have you ever allowed yourself to read it and see it? What is your mission? What is that, that, that pulse that drives you through your day. When the Great Depression hit and the stock market tanked, suicide was at an all-time high amongst people who had the most wealth. 
because what they had built their life upon was taken from them in an instant. And from that point on, they didn't feel like there was anything worth living for. You can fill in the blanks of anything that might fill that void, but if it's not Jesus, then it's temporal and it will always disappoint us. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And Paul knew that. His mission was clear. Until you intentionally look at your mission and define it, you will see little fruit. Especially if you find that your mission has little to do with growing the kingdom. If your mission has little to do with growing the kingdom and seeing those you come in contact with on a regular basis come to know Jesus, you will see little fruit. You will deal with disappointment. You'll walk through life with more questions than answers. See, Paul saw himself as the rule, not the exception. I think one danger that we have when we, when we preach through the scriptures like we are is that we can, we can elevate some of the heroes of the faith to levels they never wanted. These men and women that we talk about from scripture, they never desired to be the end-all, be-all or the star of the show. Some of them did, but we see their end not usually go the way they wanted it to go. The true heroes of the faith that we can point to in the scriptures, people like Paul and Peter, and, and, and the list goes on and on and on and on. The danger is that we can, we can idolize them when their whole life's mission was just to please God. So Paul did not see himself as the exception. He saw himself as the rule. He just looked at his life and said, this is what a passionate love of Jesus looks like for me. Maybe it won't look that way for you. But a life not lived passionately for Jesus is unacceptable. That was Paul's mission. That was Paul's message. See, Paul saw the way he lived his life as completely attainable. That's why he said things like, if you're looking for someone to point to as to how we're supposed to live this thing out, fine, follow my example. The same guy that said, my heart wants to do in Romans. He said, I, long, I find myself doing the things I don't want to do and not doing the things I know I should do. But one thing is sure, God is faithful. His grace comes in and swallows up my failures. The writer of Hebrews says the same things. Watch your leaders as they teach and expound Scripture to you and as they live this out and follow their lead and live like them. Passages like that are why a lot of people believe Paul wrote Hebrews because it sounds similar to some things else that he wrote. But he, he didn't see his life as the exception. He saw it as the rule. So I want to I look, I want to dive in a little deeper and see what Paul does because he's in a pretty tense moment and he does something interesting that I think we can all learn from as it pertains to living out our mission and thinking through that for our personal context. Paul is contextually in a tight spot that none of us have ever dealt with or will ever deal with. I doubt any of you or me will ever be in a Roman prison 
surrounded by an angry Jewish mob that wants to put us to death because of our message for Jesus. So we can say circumstantially, it's a verifiable certainty that we're never going to have to walk through exactly what Paul's walking through in this moment. And yet, I want to see what he did in this moment. He's, he's put in prison. The tribunal brings him out. He's, he's going to try to bring him his charges. He's standing on the steps in front of this angry mob. And what does Paul do? He asks to speak. He asks to speak to them. And he speaks in their language. He speaks to them in their own language. That gets their attention. Because at the verse 2 of chapter 22, it says, when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. A hush falls over the crowd. Okay, now you got our attention, Paul. You're speaking our literal language. wonder what this guy has to say. He puts himself at their level. He tells his testimony. His testimony gives common ground. He puts, he puts himself and the listener on common ground. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. I was zealous for God as, as all of you are today. And he's found common ground with his audience. Now they're listening to him captive audience. An audience that not too long ago was an angry mob has now been called an audience. And he did that through calmly putting himself at their level and allowing himself to not sound high and mighty. But he uses a tool and resource that every one of us in this room has in our toolbox. And he uses it masterfully. And that tool is his testimony. It's his story. He talks about his life before Jesus. If you look at verses 1 through 5, that's what Paul does. He talks about his life before Jesus, that he thought he knew Jesus, that he thought he knew God. He doesn't mention Jesus. That he thought he knew God, that he thought he had this figured out. He had sat at the feet of Gamaliel, as in the strict order he, he, he did all the things that a, that a good religious boy did. He sat at the feet of the right teachers. He learned the right things. He learned the language. Verse 5, he says, As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus. He's saying that the whole council of elders, every religious leader in, the known, uh, in, the, in Jerusalem of the day, the ones who are really leading the charge for religious, for religious zealots, all sign off on the idea that Saul should travel into Damascus and start rounding up Jesus' followers. If he has to, kill them but we'd really like them to come back to Jerusalem so we can make a, an object lesson of them, torture them, imprison them, and reform them back to the proper way of thinking. This was Paul's idea. When he was referred to as Saul, his idea was exactly what he says in verse 4, I persecuted this way, capital W, by the way, the way of Jesus, 
to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. And then he goes on to say what we just looked at. I even told them that I wanted to go outside of the bounds here and find as many people outside of Jerusalem. So they gave me approval letters. The letters mean that he got approval to use whatever force necessary to take down the enemy. That's what these letters are for. Go to Damascus, use whatever force is necessary, but squash what they're calling a rebellion. This way of Jesus. Squash it. But Paul creates, so Paul creates a tension. He's a master storyteller. He creates a tension and he creates a bridge at the same time. So there's a tension in the story that he's just presented and it needs resolved. Paul went to Damascus. They all know that. He left Jerusalem, an angry man who wanted to squash the way of Jesus. He left Jerusalem. That's what they knew he left Jerusalem as. He has the papers in hand. The next time he's in Jerusalem, the angry mob wants to see him dead, and he's standing there addressing them. So he's about to tell them the answer to the tension. The tension is the story's not resolved yet. Any good movie, any good storyteller gets the hook, right? So Paul has the hook now. He's set the hook. He has said, I was on my way to Damascus with papers in hand because I used to live and believe just like you. You who are angry at me, I used to be you. I used to lead the charge of your anger. Your reason you're angry is because I stirred you up all those years ago. So he tells his story before Jesus, and that creates the tension. And somehow when we present tension, it needs resolved. How many of you love cliffhangers? How many of you ever watched a cliffhanger and just never got resolved? Like your favorite TV show and all of a sudden they just canceled it and it never resolved the storyline. The worst, right? Hopefully Netflix picks it up. <laughs> so there's, there's something in, in, our, in, our, in our minds, in our human, in our hearts we need resolution to the story. It's the storyteller around the campfire, who, by the way, is usually me. Uh, so there I was. Next to the tree, I heard growling and I heard footsteps. You'll never believe what happened next. Good night, I'll tell you in the morning. <laughs> and all the kids are like, what do you mean you'll tell me in the morning, right? You've presented a tension and it needs resolved. That's what Paul's doing here. He is presenting attention, and I think he's teaching a master class on how to tell our testimony. The tension moment that you have to hook your audience is your life before Jesus. Tell that story, but leave it open-ended at the end. You end that tension point with, but then you've created tension, and it needs resolved. And from verse 6 to verse 16, Paul gives the answer to the tension. He meets Jesus. As I was on my way to Damascus, I was almost there about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. If you were to flip back to Paul's conversion, it's in Acts 9, you would read it almost identical to how he is telling it right now. 
sees the bright light. He hears the voice from heaven. His servants can't hear the voice. They can hear voice, but they can't understand it. They see the bright light. Paul, the light is so bright that he goes blind. He ends up in Damascus, blind, wandering, knowing that he heard a voice from the Lord. And all of a sudden, Ananias, who didn't necessarily want to go talk to Paul, that's the story we get earlier in Acts, didn't necessarily want to go talk to Paul because this guy was on his way there to kill guys like Ananias. And now Ananias is being told by God, no, go talk to him and tell him that he's just been called into ministry by me. And Ananias is like, time out. Uh, Can you send somebody else? Ananias goes and he looks and, and, it's, and Paul calls him a devout man, verse 12, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there. He came to me and standing by me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And if I was Saul, I'd be like, all right, you have my attention. I mean, you had my attention with the bright lights and the blindness, but you have my attention fully now because through the voice of someone who follows you, I just got my sight back. This is legit. What do you want from me? Paul sees the ugliness of his ways. He sees the error of his ways. He sees Jesus, and it changes his life. It changes his story. It gives him a mission. Do you realize what his mission was before? His mission before was to be right. That was his mission. I will be right. In any conversation, in any setting, I will be right. And if I have to take you to prison to prove that I'm right, I will. If I have to kill you to prove that I'm right, I will. I'm right. That was Paul's mission. Some of you, maybe that sounds familiar. Maybe not the killing part physically, maybe in your mind, but maybe your mission is that you will be right every time, in every situation, in every argument. I will be right. That was Paul's mission. Now, it was driven by misguided religion. He was devoted to an ideal. He wasn't devoted to a savior. Even Saul, we know as Paul, wasn't able to save himself through his his religious behavior. But he was part of a system that was created that told him if he obeyed the rules better than other people obeyed the rules, he was in a better spot than those who couldn't obey the rules as well as he could. So he was on a mission to prove that he was right. And the only thing that changed that is when he met someone who proved to him how wrong he was. And it was Jesus. He met a very real Jesus, and he retells that story. And from verse 17 through 21, it is, and here's what came out of that. I'm standing before you today, the ire of your existence, and you want to see me dead, or best case scenario for me right now is I'm going to get beat up and thrown in prison, but you want me dead. The tension in the story is I used to stand on that side of the argument yelling at the guy on the steps like me. And now I'm the guy standing on the steps, unashamed. And the reason I can do that is, and that's what he tells us in verses 17 through 21, that he heard from the Lord, that he saw the goodness of his Savior, and that's what moved him forward. 
Let me just reiterate to you that the best tool and resource for evangelism that you personally have is your story. And that's the thing that most people let collect dust far too often. See, my testimony doesn't sound a lot like Paul's, but there are similarities. I thought that if I was a good kid, a good Christian kid who was raised in a good Christian home, and I went to youth group, and I... Didn't, uh, I, I didn't make some of the same mistakes my brother did. Like, my goal was just to not be as bad as my brother. I'd marry a good Christian girl. I'd save myself for marriage. I would, uh, I would, do, I would volunteer at my church on a regular basis. And, and those were the things that I built my life on. My mission was just to, that was just my way of life. I wouldn't have told, if someone said, what is your mission? I would have known how to answer it. I would have just been able to point to my behavior. Yeah, I was an idiot in high school, but that's when I was with a crowd that I didn't go to church with, so it was okay. I was 21 years old. I had uh, spent about nine months of my life living as much lie as I possibly could. I was working at a sawmill, and I was making good money. But my... The people that were most important in my life didn't know how much money I was making. So when I told them what I made, I would always complain about how little I made because I always told people I made half of what I made because I would take the other half with me in my pocket when I'd go to the bars on Wednesday and Thursday night and just get completely tanked with my friends from high school. I'd leave youth group as a youth leader on Wednesday night. I'd go straight to the bar. I'd drink until I couldn't stand up. I'd get in my car and I'd drive myself home. Then I'd do it again on Thursday. Now, that didn't go on very long, but it went on for about seven to nine months. And throughout that time, I was still helping with youth group because I was a youth leader. I was a, good, I was a good Christian. I went to church all the time. God kept rattling my cage, and I kept fighting it off. And my youth pastor asked me if I would go to youth conference with him to help be a youth leader. And, of course, being the good Christian that I was, yeah, why wouldn't you want me influencing the young minds of tomorrow? So I went, for sake of time, I won't tell you all the details of it, but I just know that I was sitting in a dorm room listening to these kids talk about how they wanted to live out Jesus, and it was so simple to them, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, it was so simple to them. Kids saying things like, I just, I know that living for Jesus is far better than anything else, so I'm not even going to play football this year because I just want to devote my time to just loving my friends in high school and pointing them to Jesus. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, I'm an idiot. I don't get it. These kids get it. I don't get it. But in that, joy was being produced in me, and I couldn't figure out where it was coming from. So I, you know, I was a good liar, so I just pretended that everything was cool, and I prayed with the kids, and I went back to my dorm room that night. And I get to my dorm, and I remember staring out the window. I was Eastern Kentucky University for the youth conference that year. I'm looking out the window at the rest of campus, and I just keep asking God, what is this? What is this? I've never experienced this before. There's this feeling in me, and it keeps coming closer to actually becoming something, and I don't want that. It's like that feeling you get when you know you're going to throw up, and you just keep taking deep breaths, hoping that you don't. You know what I mean, right? You've all been there. You're like, okay, this isn't going to happen. Oh, no, I'm good. I'm good, right? That's how I feel in this dorm room that night. And I'm like, okay, God, there's this conviction, and it's coming up, and it's going to wreck me, and I know it is, and I don't want it. 
I made it 21 years pretending I knew you. I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it. And next thing I knew, I was sobbing on the ground of this hard tile dorm room floor. And I never in my entire life understood the grace of God more than I did in that moment. Ever. I had some not fun conversations I had to have with a lot of people after that moment, but they didn't feel as weighty as they would have felt before. I felt free. I felt free. I wasn't a liar anymore. I wasn't living this double life anymore. I felt free. And I remember saying to God, whatever it takes, wherever you want me, that's where I'll go. That's what I'll do. Lucky you, I ended up here. (laughs) And so the, the power that I have in leading someone to see Jesus is in my story because I know better than anyone else in this room what Jesus did in here. I know what he did with me. I remember what it smelled like. I remember what it felt like. I can paint you a picture of where I was, of what it was like. I can do that. You can't. You can't tell my story as well as I can. And I can't tell yours. And that's what Paul is modeling here. Tell your story. But you can't have a story to tell until you have a mission to live on. Verse 22, I want to remind you how this ends for Paul, by the way, because it's not a happy ending. Up to this word, up to this point, they listened to him. Then they raised their voice and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Now I can say with all certainty I have never had that response in my public speaking life. Away with this man from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. When we live on mission for Christ, we might not get the response we want. We might not get the response we long for every time. But without a clear mission, we will quit when things get tough or our expectations aren't met. Without a clear mission, you might tell your story, but if you get a disappointing response, you'll quit. You remember what Paul says back in Acts 20, 24, when he's talking about what his mission in life is? Listen to this. He says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You ask Paul what his mission is, that's his answer. To testify, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. The only way Paul saw his life finishing well is if he could sign off and say, that's what I did. And rarely, whenever he's being attacked by the religious elitists of the day, did he get the response that maybe you and I would want to see him get. Peter addresses this. Let me read this to you real quick and then we'll wrap up. Peter addresses this in in 1 Peter chapter 3. Verses 13 through 17, listen to what he says. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense 
to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. We tend to focus in on that, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. You cannot be ready to give an answer for Jesus if your mission in life is not to honor Him. The answer that you give will be insufficient at best if your mission is not about Jesus. If the, if the lifeblood that's pumping through your veins is not to honor God and bring those around you to, to a saving knowledge of who Jesus is, you will not have a proper answer for the hope that you have. Your fallback will say things like, well, why don't you come to church with me? Why don't you watch this YouTube clip? Why don't you listen to this podcast? I got a friend at church who's really good at talking about this stuff. How about you and I get coffee with him or her? Hey, this person in my church is really good at uh, answering hard questions like that. So how about, how about you come with me to, uh, to breakfast with them? No, Peter says, always be ready to give an answer and a defense for the hope that you have. And give it with gentleness. Give it with clarity. Paul kept going because he kept grounding himself on the radical call God had put on his life. He put himself back to the place and time of his conversion, and it grounded him. So let me ask you to do something. I'd like you to just close your eyes. Just for a couple seconds, because I'd like you to just try your best to remove any distractions. All the stuff going on, the things you have to do right after this. Try your best to remove distractions and put yourself... Back in that moment, that exact moment where you realized Jesus was your Savior. That moment where in that moment you would have done anything for Him. You would have gone to the ends of the earth for Him. You would have obeyed in any level. Maybe you're here today and you don't have a moment like that yet. Maybe today can be your moment. But if you're not living out of that moment anymore, if you're not living out of the, the reality and truth of that moment, what changed? An eternal, unchanging Jesus or you? Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And if my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, then I should be able to ground myself on that dorm room floor, sobbing, saying, whatever it costs, whatever it takes, wherever it takes me, whatever it looks like, I will follow. I will do it because I am who you say I am. And I don't need to worry about what the opinion of the outside world says of me because I am who you say I am. That was Paul's message on the steps. That's our message today. So may we go and tell our story. God, you are an amazing God who blesses us with everything. You give us yourself. Your word tells us you've given us all good things in the heavenlies. You've 
you've blessed us richly through the riches and kindness that, that it says, your word says in Romans 2 that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance, not shame, not, not regret, but your kindness. When we see that in the midst of no matter what I've done, no matter how I've lived, your redeeming grace is big enough to swallow it all up and you want to do that for us. And the moment we get that, the moment we live out of that, that's when our story really gets started, Lord. May we not live in the tension of an untold story anymore. May you give us courage and boldness as we walk this road to tell our story well and give us a true mission to be able to share that story and let that be the thing that drives us because we know our identity is wrapped up in who you say we are. 